Italy contains more of the world's art masterpieces than any place on Earth. For sightseers there, it can be overwhelming to sort through all those paintings and sculptures from the Etruscans, the Romans, the Renaissance, the Baroque Age, and on and on. And it can also be fun. I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're starting out the hour with two of my favorite art experts who join us to breathe life into Italy's great paintings, mosaics, and statues. Jean Openshaw is the co-author of my Europe 101 book about the history and art of Europe, and Francesca Caruso is an art historian and guide based in Rome. Through their guiding, they've found that art is best enjoyed when you understand it and the context in which it was made. Thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure. Buongiorno. Francesca, you deal with tourists all the time. It must be just overwhelming for the tourist to come in who's never been in an old city. And you go to Rome and you can dig down through the layers and the layers and the layers and you got 2,500 years of history. How do you sort through it all? Well, the thing is not to try too hard and in the sense that just try to let go, take pressure off yourself and enjoy. So, for example, you can think of Rome as a tapestry. It's not the individual threads that count. It's the overall image that they all contribute to creating. You can look at Rome like a person. Think of yourself. In this moment, you are what you are right now, but you're also everything you've been since the day you were born. So everything exists at the same time. So just enjoy it. Enjoy the coexistence of every moment in history and every moment in art. But the most important thing is that it has to be for you. It has to be an experience. You're not there because that's what cultured people do. You're there to make it significant for yourself. So 500 years before Christ, southern Italy was called Magna Graecia, a Greek sort of colony. Mm -hmm. And the northern part was a quite sophisticated um, League of City-States, yes. which were Etruscan. Yes. And then, of course, the Romans threw out their Etruscan king about 700 years before mm -hmm. Christ and established this uh, Rome and now we're off and running. All roads lead to Rome, so even artistically and culturally, why not think of it in these terms, certainly. If you want to see ancient Greek sites in Italy, Jean, what would you recommend? Well, certainly you'll see a lot of the statues in the museums, but I would say go down south of Rome to uh, the site called Paestum. It's not only a great area for Greek ruins, but it's a place where you can you know, make a home base and eat seafood and watch the sunset from a beautiful restaurant, and then by day go sightseeing in Paestum, where you have this big wide field where you have three of the best preserved Greek temples anywhere, as well preserved as anything that you'll find in Greece itself. The great thing about Paestum is that you have the place all to yourself virtually. It's a big wide meadow, so in a sense you can send yourself back in time and walk among these temples. It doesn't take the major stretch of imagination that it takes a lot of ruins to bring these places to life. And conveniently there's a wonderful little museum just across the way that, that collects all of the precious discoveries in the way of frescoes and, and uh, statuary. Yeah, so much of the ruins that we see, we see them now as these gray, white, crumbling ruins, but originally they were painted, they were plastered over. Uh, frescoed, and when you go to this museum, you can see frescoes, for example, that very famous diver fresco, and you actually see this athlete in midair as he's diving down into the crystal blue waters, and you can imagine that thing painted on one of the temples that you see just across the street and brings it to life. Now, this is a good thing that we need to remember is you go to the ancient site and you wander through the rubble, and architecturally it might be astounding, but you don't get a sense of the intimate um, human aspect of it unless you complement that by going to the associated museum. In the case of Pompeii, I think most of the great art of Pompeii is not at Pompeii, but it's 
in the National Museum in Naples. Yes, certainly. So it is important to integrate the artwork with the architectural context that was that it was part of, that it was intended for. Now, when we're thinking about the sweep of art history in Italy, of course, we've got the ancient Greek stuff. Even the city of Naples is a Greek word, Neapolis, the new city. And the grid plan of Naples today goes all the way back to Greek times, 500 BC. But the dominant culture is Rome, which came out of the Etruscan civilization. We don't know much about the Etruscans, uh, except for what we've excavated well, from Well, we don't tombs. in this room. That's true. <laughs> so, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we could learn no. a lot more <laughs> yeah. if a tourist wanted to know more. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there are sites that you're going to see even if you don't seek them out. If you're in Rome, for example, the very famous Circus Maximus, you know, the, the, the chariot race course, the Ben-Hur race course, it's a marvelous thing to see. But what most people don't know is that, that the roots of that are when the Etruscans dominated Rome. Rome was just a small little town ruled by an Etruscan king called the Tarquin, and it was only when they threw him out that they established themselves, and sites like the Circus Maximus then became built up with the grandeur of Rome. So if you wanted to get a, the full story, you'd make a point while you're in Rome to go to one of the museums that specialize in Etruscan art. There is an Etruscan museum, actually. There is the Etruscan museum in the Villa Borghese. A little bit musty, a little time pass, but a nice place to go. But probably the best place for most people would be the Vatican mm -hmm. Museum itself, mm -hmm. because it's got a, a wing right in there that's right along the path that most tourists take anyways. And you can make a short detour in there. You can see statues that the Etruscans did. You can see a chariot that the Etruscans did that would have run around the Circus Maximus, for example. Now, Rome is pretty brutal from a sightseeing point of view. Uh, Francesca, would you recommend, if you want to do one good Etruscan museum, skip the Etruscan Museum in the Borghese Garden mm -hmm. and go to the Vatican Museum and look at the Etruscan wing there? I think it's absolutely valid. And then if you want to see Etruscan sites that are uh, doable in a day, you can go to Cerveteri and Tarquinia that are, I think, an hour or something away from Rome. You can maybe rent a car or something, and you can actually see the Etruscan tombs that the are splendid. The best two necropoli or something, uh, an hour north of Rome or See, something like this. a little longer than that, but it's absolutely doable in a day trip. Okay. Let's talk about now Rome proper. The story of Rome goes for a thousand years. And, of course, Francesca, you are from this this uh, eternal city. I always think of a, a busy tourist could just get out a map and circle the great sites of ancient Rome and, and make it a walk. We call it the Caesar's Shuffle. If you had somebody for half a day, and you know the attention span and the energy level of a lot of uh, exhausted tourists that got a lot of other things in their mind, what would you be sure to recommend that they do? Well, uh, I would I would definitely focus on ancient Rome. I would start at the Colosseum, and then from there I would go to the Roman Forum through the new entrance at the Palatine so that you can also walk along a little bit of Palatine Hill, then through the Forum up to Capitoline Hill and over to the Pantheon. You can do that, I think, in about three, three and a half hours, and you really get a good glimpse of ancient Rome. So Colosseum, Palatine Hill, Forum. Yes. And then... I think you'd cap it off with the Pantheon. Yes, with a gelato on the way, of course. And a gelato yeah. on the way. Very important. We did the same thing <laughs> with our TV <laughs> show. You know, we started out, I want to tell the story, but it's just too much history. So we had to break the TV show with a goofy little gelato break, just like as a tour guide, you would do the same thing. Yes. Gene, the, the Colosseum's kind of a slam dunk. Everybody enjoys the Colosseum. But the Palatine Hill, it's a hot day. It's just not much but the foundations of those palaces. What would your trick be to making the Palatine Hill worth the sweaty climb to the top of that? Yeah, this is a place where you really would have to exercise your imagination to rebuild it. This was where the palace was for the emperor, a 150,000-square-foot palace. I mean, if you can even imagine that. But when you go up there, you can at least see the major outlines. You see, oh, this is where a fountain would have been. Oh, here's where their, 
their jogging track was. And you see the, the oval-shaped track that they had there. And a throne. Can't you see the spot where the throne was? Yes. And you actually see the actual throne room and can imagine people climbing the, the, the steps up from the forum down below and entering into what would have been a huge arched hall, echoing and, and meeting the emperor sitting on his throne. Also, if you go to Palatine Hill, please go to see the Casa di Augusto, the House of Augustus, the part of the House of the First Emperor, where you can actually see the frescoes from 2,000 years ago restored to beauty that I cannot even begin to describe. Right there on Palatine Hill. Yes, yes. Yes, it has been open to the public after centuries of restoration. (laughs) And you you can actually look into the room that was the studio of the Emperor Augustus. And I think, as as Jean says, you can really imagine, you can imagine Augustus practically inventing the empire in that room. You need to make the point to humanize the experience by Always. following up and going into the intimate little rooms where they keep the precious and fragile surviving bits of the, the more of the artifacts and the, and the jewelry and this sort of thing. I, I always feel like people are overwhelmed by the outdoor sites, and sometimes they forget to follow that up by going to the great museum. I would say that, well, you got the Vatican collection, which is great, and then the small museums on the various sites, like what you just mentioned on top of the Palatine Hill, but the Palazzo Massimo, that's the museum. And when you go to the Palazzo Massimo, they have these delicate jewelry cases and the glass, the painted glass. It's just incredible how you can get intimate with ancient Rome. Yes, I know you're a great fan of that museum, and I'm happy because, unfortunately, I think it's still not, not enough people go. And if you go to the top floor, you can see the frescoes from what used to be the underground dining room of the Empress Livia. So what could be more beautiful than a painted garden uh, on a wall where you can almost hear the birds chirping, and you can imagine these people living in those spaces, and you can get closer, and they won't be so intimidating and far away. And when you see those small chambers and you're reminded, for example, of how difficult it must have been to heat these rooms, so the importance of having small chambers, at least, where they slept. And that was, things like that, that was rich people's wallpaper, basically. They, did, they couldn't go to the store and buy wallpaper, but you could hire somebody to paint a garden on your wall to give you that wonderful, cool ambience. Jean, how would you humanize or make Rome intimate for a, a tourist visit to Rome? Well, one thing that I thought about that isn't with, within Rome but that makes the Roman Empire come alive is the visit to Pompeii. Because much as the Romans created great art, what I think resonates with a lot of Americans is it's a cliche almost to compare ancient Rome with America, but it's a cliche that's really true. And when you walk around Pompeii, what you're seeing is not necessarily the great art. You're seeing frescoes like you might see at the Palazzo Massimo on these villas. You're seeing the places that people would have lived. You're walking down sidewalks. You can see the the ruts in the road and you imagine chariots going through there. And then you can actually go and see these plaster casts of the actual human beings that died in Pompeii suddenly on, I don't know the exact date, August 24th, 79 AD, or whenever it was, when the nearby volcano Vesuvius blew up and in an instant froze this very typical city right in action. And so walking through Pompeii, you're getting a sense of the Roman people in a way that you never would looking at the art, at the statues, at the fine art that they had. You're actually seeing their way of life that was frozen in a moment. That's the challenge of the traveler, and that's what you need to do when you go, when you go all the way to these great sites is find a way to piece together the images. So it's not just that pizza oven there, which looks just like the pizza ovens you'll see on the streets of Rome today, but there's the wood-burning stove that they still have today. But to look at those casts of those people and imagine what life was like, 79 AD. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, co-author of Europe 101, and Francesca Caruso, who is a guide uh, from Rome. 
We've got lots more Italian art coming up. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're enjoying a sweep through the art of Italy. And when you travel in Italy, sure, there's great cappuccino, there's great people watching, there's all sorts of fun in the streets, and there's great art. And when you can grapple with this art and put it together, I think your travels become more rewarding. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, who's an art historian and author of several books. Gene co-authors my Europe 101 book, and Francesca Caruso, who's a guide from Rome. We all know about the rise and fall of Rome from our sightseeing point of view. Gothic, well, medieval art before the Renaissance. I mean, in the Middle Ages, Italians called themselves they were in a middle time, I believe. They even recognized that they were standing on the rubble of Rome. Something greater was before them. They were just rutting in the mud. They're waiting for something, again, worthy of them to, to kindle out of that compost pile of ancient Rome. And they knew there would be a Renaissance, a rebirth coming up, but it took a thousand years. If you're going to appreciate that thousand-year period between the fall of Rome and the Renaissance arriving in Florence. Francesca, what would you recommend? I would recommend exploring the mosaics in the apses of Rome's medieval churches. Medieval Rome is the most difficult one to find because it has the layers of Renaissance and especially the layers of Baroque on top of it that are so visually so rich, so you have to go looking for it. But there are extraordinary mosaics in Rome. You can actually follow the entire evolution from when we distance ourselves from representing reality to when we start getting close to representing reality again. Blue skies that disappear and turn into gold, but then again, Again, people will become more three-dimensional again, so paving the way towards the Renaissance. So mosaics in churches like Santa Maria Maggiore, Santa Cecilia, Santa Maria in Trastevere, uh, Santa Prassede. There's so many to choose from, and I really invite you to explore them. Now, didn't the Renaissance people actually insult the age before them by calling it Gothic, like of the Goths, meaning barbarian and, and lower? And wouldn't they be inclined to paint over that stuff as if it was a bunch of trashy art, Jean? Yeah, the barbarian invasions were just devastating. And um, those were Goths in some cases. In many they? cases, they were actually Goths, Visigoths, the people that invaded Italy. And you, you must imagine that for generations, they hated those people and they saw the destruction all around them. You know, I, I think about, for example, being in Venice and you can go out and take a boat out into the lagoon, the, the waters around there, and you visit some of the small islands and you get out to the very far reaches and you see the island of Torcello. And you can just imagine this was the foundation as Rome was collapsing, as the barbarians from the north, these Germanic peoples were invading, raping and pillaging, and people for their own safety went out into the islands, the only place they thought would be safe. And you get out to Torcello and it's nothing but marshy area, it's nothing but a kind of barren landscape. And then you walk and you all of a sudden find this big, beautiful church. And in there it has, as Francesca d describes, it's got this mosaic. Glorious. Glorious. As though it were this, this lifeline of enlightenment that these people who were now suffering at the hands of the barbarians could reach out for. And wasn't that basically from what we would call the Dark Ages? That was before the, the High Gothic Age and so on. Yes, it is. It is probably, and the lifeline they were reaching for is what we would call the Byzantine Empire. So Rome falls, part of it retreats to the east where the high civilization can survive, and the empire and the grandeur and the glory of Rome survives in Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, with its western sort of uh, fringe being Venice and, and Ravenna in Italy. So we see the greatness of Byzantium in Italy when we want to appreciate Dark Age art in Europe? Yes. 
and some of the best of the mosaic art. There's great stuff in Rome, as Francesca mentions, but of course the very best is in Ravenna right. and a lot of it in nearby Venice. Now, Francesca, you live and work and specialize in Rome. I'm struck by how little Gothic architecture there is in Rome. You've got Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, one Gothic church. Why is there so little Gothic in Rome? Because we are prisoners of our past in the sense that any any style and architecture that differs too much from the classical tradition has never really found its place in Rome. Uh, so you, so you, even in the Dark Ages, Roman architects and, and artists were sitting on the rubble of Rome. They had this classical sensitivity. They didn't want the European style art, which was no, a No, they a use counter. a Roman basilica as a model. And also, don't forget that those were times in which uh, the papacy was absolutely penniless. It takes a while for them to also put together... What do they say? There's like together, more they... thieves and wolves in Rome than decent citizens. It went from a million people down to... How, what was the smallest population of Rome in the Dark Ages? I think the safest is 20,000. You will read 10,000, 20, but 20,000 is that. a good one, I think. And too. then the Pope really wanted to spiff it up, didn't he, Jean? Yeah, the, the big rebuilding of Rome took place, and it's what we would call the Renaissance. Okay, let's go to the Renaissance then, because that's what we've been waiting for, is this rebirth throughout the Dark Ages. We've got on the phone a guide from Florence, which is the birthplace of the Renaissance, Antonia Lanza Diatta. Antonia, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you're a licensed guide in Florence. Uh, you're, yes. you're British, but you live and work in Florence now. I'm British, but I have Italian nationality. Uh, I've lived here for 43 years. Now, when a tourist is coming in, it must be so frustrating for somebody who's really a, a scholar about art history, especially the Renaissance, to see tourists coming into Florence and, uh, you know, where's Michelangelo? And then what's next? I want some pizza. How do you help people appreciate the Renaissance in Florence in their rapid, torrid kind of tempo of, of modern-day tourism? Well, I try and show them, in a way, what I call my Florence, which is the wonderful museums like Michelangelo's David and so on. But I like to take them to some of maybe the slightly less better-known museums. Uh, one is the chapel in the Medici's private palace, which is beautiful frescoes by Benozzo Gozzoli. He worked with Fra Angelico. And the story is the story of the three wise men coming to visit the Christ child. But the people in those frescoes are people who were actually in Florence in the Council of Florence in 1439 when we had the meeting of the Eastern and Western churches. So you see Joseph, the patriarch of Constantinople, on his white mule, and he died in Florence, was buried in the church of Santa Maria Novella. And I like to try and get people to imagine what it was like living in those times. And you can imagine that because a lot of the art... This is a small room, by the way. It's not much bigger than a large living room, and it is just literally slathered with this gorgeous, sumptuous fresco, and all of the characters are contemporary Florentines uh, that the artist is depicting. So you do have this sort of time tunnel experience with a good guide. Is, is that right, uh, Antonia? Yes, and also you see the faces. Cause, you know, one of the things I say to people is when we walk out of here, just look at the faces you see on the street because the clothes have changed, the faces haven't. And you'll see those frescoes come alive. And it's the same thing if you take them to one of the wonderful museums like the Bargello Museum, which has an extraordinary collection of uh, sculptured objects. And we see busts of the Medici family themselves, but we also see some of the great works, again, by Michelangelo, by Donatello, the wonderful collection of birds made for the Medici's villas by Giambologna. And they look as if they're just about to fly out of the balcony they're on in the museum. Jean Openshaw, how would you um, 
help make the culture and the art uh, more intimate for a visitor to Florence? When Antonio mentions that particular chapel in the Benici Riccardi Palace, I remember my last visit there, and I'd heard that there was a portrait of the famous Lorenzo the Magnificent in there. But I'm looking all over, and I couldn't find Lorenzo. So I asked the—I guess you'd call her the guard that was there, and I tried in my best Italian. I don't speak Italian, but it's like, uh, per favore, uh, mi scusi, um, dove Lorenzo il Magnifico? Where is Lorenzo the Magnificent? And she picked up this pointer, this big, like a, like a teacher would use in seventh grade, and she just reaches towards the fresco and points out this angelic little pug face of a 10-year-old Lorenzo the Magnificent wearing his little boy fez. If you can interact with some of the people there and get local information that way, bring some of it to life. Now, Antonio, when, when we're trying to bring it to life, It's fun to think of the um, social networking and so on. To me, it was like controversial uh, secret society that could actually get into the great pre-Christian art and the fleshiness of all this humanism and everything. And Michelangelo would actually hang out with the Medici and they would inspire each other and they would teach each other. Uh, Sort that through for me a little bit. Well, Michelangelo was actually patronized by Lorenzo the Magnificent, so he lived in that palace. And he would have seen these frescoes because they're in the mid-1400s. And, of course, he worked a lot for the Medicis. In the Church of San Lorenzo, there's a wonderful collection of his sculptures in the Medici tombs. He also designed the wonderful Laurentian Library. And it's all very near, so it's very easy to take people, even on a day tour, just walking them through there. And another thing you know I like doing is taking them to the San Lorenzo market. Because we see the foodstuffs which we've been eating for centuries. I say we because I consider myself an Italian now. And then maybe you go, if they've got time, you can go maybe in an afternoon or if they've got two days here, you can go and see one of the wonderful collections of still lives in one of the Medici villas, Podro Cagliano. And you see that, that they were eating the same kind of foods then. So these are different creative ways for the thoughtful traveler to enliven their sightseeing. And Tony, help me a little more with this. I I envision every Tuesday a conspiracy of intellectuals celebrating humanism, getting together over at the Medici's Palace, where uh, the great patrons of the art in the Medici family would welcome the Michelangelos and the artistic geniuses, and they would get together and they would do this stuff that really was challenging the norms of the age, because just a generation or two before when Donatello made the first male nude, freestanding nude in a thousand years in Europe, this male body was no longer something that would get you in trouble and would be sort of like pornography, but it was celebrating the body and and beauty and this whole Renaissance spirit. Tell me more about that. Did did I get that right? That's very simplistic, but that's the sense I get in that heady time within the palaces, because this is a rich man's uh, thing. The poor people were probably oblivious to what was going on. Yes, this this is an intellectual moment when there are these new ideas going around. It's Lorenzo the Magnificent's grandfather, Cosimo the Elder, who is the banker who makes that immense amount of money, and by some historians is said to have been the greatest patron of the arts since antiquity. He is the one who starts this court, and you have this wonderful flowering of thought in the court. Lorenzo himself is also an extremely important and intelligent man and a musician and a poet. We still have some of his music uh, performed today. 
So it was a, an incredibly rich moment. You were talking about the beautiful David by Donatello. It's just gone back on show again at the Bargello, having been cleaned in, for the first time in over 100 years, mm. and they've discovered part of the original gilding on that. Yeah, when you think about Michelangelo, uh, especially growing up with Lorenzo the Magnificent in that palace, growing up where very likely Donatello's statues might have stood in the garden of that palace. Oh, yes. And Michelangelo soaked up all of this Renaissance attitude that had been explored for nearly a century in Florence. And then when he himself was called to Rome to work for the popes, it's like Michelangelo took the Renaissance and made it global and sent it to Rome, to Venice, and across Europe with his personal popularity, the Florentine Renaissance. Yes, and of course, also in Rome, you'd also had Botticelli, who'd been working down there as well, and before that, you'd had uh, Frangelico, who I've already mentioned. Think of Michelangelo visiting the churches here and looking at what we can look at today, the Church of Santa mm -hmm. Maria Novella, the wonderful fresco by Masaccio of the Holy Trinity, the frescoes in Santa Maria Novella by Domenico del Ghirlandaio with the stories of the Virgin Mary and of John the Baptist, where we see members of the Medici family, they were painted for Lorenzo's uncle, Giovanni Tornabuoni. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by a bunch of people that inspire me to get to know the art better. We've got Antonia Lanza Dieta who's a licensed guide in Florence, Francesca Caruso, who's a guide from Rome, and Jean Openshaw, who's uh, writing art books and uh, history books here in the United States. We have uh, Jerry on the line in Muckleteal, Washington. Jerry, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you today? Great. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. <laughs> it makes me want to go back to Italy. <laughs> What's your thought about this whole art business in Italy? Well, I, I, I've got people who ask me all the time, so, you know, once you go, everybody thinks you're an expert. And... Uh, <laughs> People want to know all the time, you know, if you're going to introduce somebody new to the Renaissance and to art in Italy, where would you start? Because you go to churches and museums everywhere you go, where should you start? Because there's so much it can be overwhelming. Well, Jerry, what, where would you start as a, as a person who's enjoyed a little travel? What, what building gave you the best introduction to the Renaissance? It was the one I saw after I saw most of northern Italy, and I ended up in, in Padua at the Scrivani Chapel uh, seeing some of the introductory work that Giotto did. And had I seen that before I had gone to see some of the other great churches or some of the museums that overwhelmed me in Florence, uh, I might have understood better what those themes were that are painted continuously as a teaching tool throughout all those churches in Europe. Gene, what's your experience with the Scrovini Chapel? Oh, I love the Scrovini Chapel. Yeah, Jerry, I, I agree completely. That's Giotto is often considered the father of the Renaissance, even though he really was a century before it ever started. He frescoed it, telling the story of Jesus and his mother, Mary. And, and it's done almost in a series of postcards or snapshots, these little rectangular things that just snake all around the chapel. And you can just sit and read these things just like a, like a movie storyboard where this is the episode in, in Mary's life, and then she, you know, gives birth to Jesus, and then Jesus grows up, and he goes to the temple, and then he preaches, and he, you know, and each of these things culminating in Jesus' crucifixion, and then finally, the great uh, story where Jesus comes back to be the judge at the Last Judgment, and it's all told in a narrative way. This was the great revolution, I think, for the Renaissance artists, was to take 
uh, spiritual matters and put them into human terms, almost as though you were going to watch a movie of somebody's life. And if these artists could bring that to life in that way, they could convey the spiritual message and the greatness of God. The Scrovini Chapel does that for me. Now, that was the media of the age, when you think about it. I mean, the best they could do was to do this storyboard with realistic painting rather than the flat, two-dimensional symbolism of the previous age. Yeah, and as realistic as they could possibly make it... Must have blown people away back then. It would be like uh, very good video games that we have today that have that 3D virtuality that makes you feel right a part of it. And that's why pilgrims would go to Padua with the, the Church of St. Anthony there. But Padua, by the way, this place that Jerry's talking about... It's just a, what, half an hour, 45 minutes uh, west of Venice, and it really is, because Venice is so popular, an underrated destination. And this Scrovini Chapel, wallpapered by beautiful frescoes by Giotto, is one of these new precious little bits of the artistic heritage of, of our civilization that is so fragile and, and so well taken care of. The tourists have to get an appointment. You have to sit in one chamber to take the humidity out of the air, and then you go into the next chamber, and you get exactly 20 minutes to see the chapel, and then you're out of there while the next dried-out group comes in with no flash attachments <laughs> and no moisture in the air to enjoy Giotto's masterpiece. Was that your experience, Jerry? Yeah, it, it, it was something that it was almost perfect to go back to Italy. It's one of those places that you can do one when you're getting over jet lag before you start in Venice. And it's an easy thing to do. It was, it was a wonderful experience. I, I wish I had seen it beforehand because it tied together so many other things I saw in, in Italy at other churches and other places. All right. Jerry from Muckleteal, Washington, thanks a lot for your insight Thank you, there. Rick. Appreciate it. Now, We've been talking about the Renaissance. The next stage after the Renaissance is the Baroque movement, which, like the Renaissance, started in Italy. But the Baroque movement, you could fairly say, started in Rome, couldn't you, Francesca? Uh, certainly. I think uh, I think that's, that's true. And in Rome, it does acquire a splendor that, again, goes back to antiquity. So, the... so Rome had the money. Yes, at that point. And yes. Rome had a church that wanted to get people to... Uh, clap their hands uh, spiritually and uh, pro-status quo and just wow them with a little glimpse of heaven. And Baroque. Rome had the man that put it all together, Gian Lorenzo Bernini, yes. the father of the Baroque movement. Absolutely. You've got so much art in Italy. Of course, you've got the, the foundation, which is the rubble of ancient Rome. They have a thousand-year period of uh, middle time where people were waiting for a rebirth of the greatness of classical Rome, and then you got it in Florence around the year 1400. Coming out of the Renaissance, we've got the Baroque movement. Now, Baroque was born in Rome, right, Francesca? Yes. Uh, if we want to be really concise about it, we can take it to Luther's Reformation. Imagine the impact that that had on Rome and on the church. It will take them years to get back on their feet after that trauma. And when they do, they need to find an artistic language that they can use to communicate to the Catholics all over Europe that will convince them, that will persuade them that the truth is still in Rome. So that's counter-reformation. Well, really. a Baroque is, uh, is that. It's the language, the artistic language of counter-reformation. So I always try to imagine being a pilgrim from a village in the mountains in Spain or from France or from Ireland. I travel on for for weeks and I walk into St. Peter's. I, I smell the incense, I see the candles, I, I, hear, I hear the chanting in that context. So I am wowed. It is an experience that reaches me through my eyes and my senses. That is Baroque. Baroque is about emotion. We can say that the Renaissance is the art of the mind, but Baroque is the art of the heart. It's about movement, it's about emotion, it's about surprising, it's about amazing. It's pro-status quo? Certainly. And now, that is why that's the final phase, no? So you have this, what a lot of people call the First World War. Europe is embroiled in these religious wars, and it's all, are you going to go to heaven this way or that way? Control. And you've got this opportunity that Luther capitalized on by letting uh, small political leaders be their own individual popes in a protesting kind of way. 
And you got the Catholic Church fighting back with genius like Bernini, making art that makes you just say, praise the Lord, I'm following you. So do you see why the emotion? And now I'm not supposed to read the scriptures by myself. I'm supposed to go through the intercession of the church. So the church encouraged me to participate emotionally and visually in the experience rather than elaborating intellectually on my own. Gene Openshaw, if you want to feel what this this emotional agenda of the Baroque Age is, how would you do it? You know, there's a there's a site. This is so offbeat, but I'm going to mention it. There's a site in Rome that is done in the Baroque style that really hits a very different kind of emotion than St. Peter's sense, where you're seeing the you're getting a glimpse into heaven practically, and that is the Capuchin Crypt, which is a church which is decorated in a Baroque style, but the medium that they used wasn't paint, it wasn't sculpture, it wasn't stone. They're using the tibias and femurs and skulls of dead monks from their order that they then took and arranged in these elaborate designs all over the Capuchin crypt. And you walk through there, and of course the the effect or the emotion that you're getting is you're actually confronting your own mortality. In fact, the I think the motto that they give you is something like, uh, it's as though these these bones are speaking to you and they say, what we are now, you will become, and what you are now, we once were. That is art that hits you in a very emotional way. Does that go back to the Baroque age? It was done in the 1700s in the Baroque style. And what you'll find huh. all over Rome, for example, is works that look as stunning as anything that Bernini did, but they're done in the style of Bernini. You think the Trevi Fountain, for example, famous, just one of the great artworks. And who designed it? I I don't know, Francesca, you probably know, but I don't, because he was sort of a no-name guy. But what he was doing is copying this very elaborate, ornate style that Bernini pioneered and made it the style that you'll find all over Rome. And it's the same age when you have these divine monarchs saying, God said, I can rule you because I'm a divine monarch and you are lucky to be under my rule. And if you want to impress upon your commoners, you better have some wow art. You don't just have a column. You've got one of those, oh, wow, spiral columns. You don't just have a wall. You've got a gilded wall. You control nature. You you have fountains. Bernini was great with fountains, right? Because that controls nature, implying you've got some sort of superpower. Yes, I think it really is about control and this uh, this emotional response. I mean, if you want to compare a Renaissance statue, think of uh, think of Michelangelo's David, and compare it to Bernini's David. What do what do Baroque statues do? They move and they feel and they pull you into their experience, which is again emotional. It's, it would, another one I love doing this: compare a classic Renaissance image, Michelangelo's yes. David or Leonardo's Mona Lisa, right? And you compare that with a, a rape scene from Rubens. Yes, there we go. That's perfect. Or a Bernini, where yes. you've got some exciting moment captured in marble, just that split second. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Francesca Caruso, who visits us from Rome. Francesca's a guide in Rome. And Jean Openshaw, who co-authors my Europe 101 book and is uh, our in-house art historian. Melanie's on the line in Stony Creek, Ontario. Melanie, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Yeah, Do you have any thoughts on enjoying Baroque in Rome? Uh, well, I made sure to make an appointment for the Villa Borghese, uh, before we went to Rome a few months in advance because you need an appointment to get in there. And we saw the most wonderful Bernini sculpture there. It was uh, unfortunate that you couldn't take any pictures, of course, because you, you don't have anything to bring home with you other than your memories, but it was really amazing. Which statue was that? Do you remember? Um, the Pluto and uh, Proserpini. Yeah. It was just amazing. It looked as though 
his fingers were penetrating the marble as though he were actually grabbing her fleshy thigh. Yes. You, could only, you could just see the anguish in her face, and you could see the determination on his face. And the hair was all perfectly curled and styled, but it was at the same time really wild. Yeah, every, it, it, everybody it here perfection. is nodding. With, there's sort of spiritual nuptials <laughs> going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> when you go to the Borghese Gallery, to me it is the greatest single artistic experience, I would say. I, I got to say, in, in Europe, to go to that palace, and you got all the incredible paintings upstairs, but you got the Bernini masterpieces, his greatest statues there, including uh, Apollo Chasing Daphne, which yes, is my yes, personal favorite. Into a dream. As well. mm. And the great thing about the Galleria is they give so much space to each of the pieces, so you can really enjoy them, and you can walk around them in 360 degrees to get every angle, and they're not pushed up against a corner somewhere where you have to try to to get a glimpse. Francesca, do I get it right? But I think the rooms were designed to complement the actual statues because you've got the same scene on the roof, right? Yes, the rooms were sort of repainted, redone uh, in late 17, early 1800s. And of course, at that point, really to focus on those statues. But you know, the interesting thing is that uh, Bernini didn't really intend uh, some of those statues to be walked around. If you go to the back of the David, you'll see that he didn't even finish carving it. Because strangely enough, they were intended to be against the wall. And more and more, he takes you by the hand and he tells you, where to stand exactly. There are perfect point of views. But for us today, because we like to indulge in his technique, which is so extraordinary, walking around them is important. So the display is phenomenal. I absolutely agree with you. Jean, what's your take on the Borghese Gallery? Oh, I, I agree completely. The Bernini statues are the highlight. There's some other great things in it. But of course, it's just the setting itself, as you're seeing these things in not just, yes, it is now a museum, but it originally was a villa, the home of a wealthy cardinal set inside a gardens. So to go there, you have to walk through these landscaped gardens to get there, which is itself an aesthetic experience. Yes, you have to make a reservation, which is a hassle, but it means that you get to go in with a limited number of people and experience it just as though you were, uh, you know, a guest of the cardinal. And you get to wander through these rooms and see the statues within the very setting that they were intended. It is like you're a guest of the cardinals. That's a good way to put it. This cardinal's palace, 40 people go in every half hour, and you've got the palace without any mob scenes of people just overwhelmed by appreciating the ultimate Baroque art experience. I just wanted to say that for me, the Borghese is where you discover that art, looking at art has a lot to do with happiness and joy. I mean, you go there and you see this incredible art and this amazing architectural container and that within the natural context. I mean, sometimes we forget it, but we look at art also. That's a beautiful, so every funny. time I'm with you, Francesca, you open <laughs> something up. I mean, here you have this sort of multi-layered joy of life. I yes. mean, we're getting down to what art's all about in a great park, a great palace, great statues, it's an ensemble. I think I've seen more people realize that they enjoy looking at art at that museum more than any other museum I know. Yeah. Melanie, was your experience of making a reservation for this gallery uh, frustrating, or did it work well? It was very simple. It was simply over the Internet, and uh, we were actually a few minutes late, which people will tell you to uh, make sure not to be, but we were kept a little by the capuchin crypt on our way up the hill. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> Those bones are intriguing. Now, we will soon be <laughs> a happy little reminder halfway uh, through your we vacation. Weren't, we weren't hurried at all. Right. Um, it, we didn't have to be out within a 30-minute span. Um, it could be because we were at the end of the day, mm -hmm. but we didn't feel at all hurried, and um, it really wasn't at all difficult. Now, they do have you actually check your camera in. Right. So, they're, so they're, they're very sure you're not going to take anything. They're wise to that. You can't just say, I won't use this. You can't well, take it There are it also um, stewards in every room. Right. Melanie, thanks for your call. 
Thank you. Happy travels. Robin's on the line in Millersville, Maryland. Robin, thanks for your call. Got any thoughts on the Baroque movement in Rome or art in Italy in general? Well, art in Italy in general, my husband have, have been there twice now, and I have been there twice now, but we always comment on how wonderful it is to, you know, be able to go into these wonderful museums all throughout Europe, including Italy. We all always comment on how we can just be walking down a street, Florence in particular, and look over and see a church with the doors wide open, and you can walk in and be face-to-face with priceless works of art. Well, first of all, you walk in for free, and, you know, there's there's no security, there's no glass. You're just standing many times by yourself right there in front of this great piece of art. It almost makes it more meaningful that these small neighborhoods in Italy consider these pieces their possessions, and many times the artist's lived there or created the work there in that town, and it makes it very enlightening. Yes, and I, I'm glad that you noticed that because I think that one of the, the great things about Italy is that there's so much beauty and it's so accessible, it's so right there. So I think that the way I always like to say it is, is that in Italy, you should never feel that there is a separation between your personal space and the space of the art. The space of the art is yours. There's supposed to be this daily interaction with it that I think you can enjoy when you come to visit. As a matter of fact, it's designed that way. I, my son was studying in Rome for a semester, and I palled around with his class for a day, and it, the focus was Caravaggio. And we walked uh, lacing together four or five churches between Piazza del Popolo and the uh, Pantheon with Caravaggio paintings, free. Step into the church, there it is. And oftentimes it was sort of done in this Baroque style of it's a theater, right? And they've drawn the drapes back, and you've got the, the people leaning out of their seats, and, and they're there with you. There's three or four or five hundred years separating you, but they're there with you enjoying this moment. But that's the whole point, that when you're there, when you're in the presence of that art, then you, you feel that. You feel su- you're sucked into it, and you're in that moment. You're in the 1500s. You're in the 1600s. If you're a good traveler. Too many people, they just take a flash picture, and they're on their way. You've got to give yourself credit to be poetic or be romantic or get swept up in it. You need to let the art be a time tunnel machine and take you back and understand the context in which it was painted. And if you can see the art in situ, in the actual spot it was designed to be, rather than hanging on a wall with 30 other Titians, I think that gives you a, a real advantage. Yes. Uh, think, of, think of an altar painting above an altar and try to imagine Mass celebrated in front of it with people from the neighborhood listening to Mass 400 years ago in front of that painting. With if a you... fiery counter-reformation <laughs> Jesuit going like this. We always go back to that, don't we? And then you see, <laughs> and then you see the, the serpent of Luther being stepped on by the soldiers and everybody going, Amen, damn you Protestants. <laughs> Gene, take us into the Jesu Church. <laughs> The Jesu Church in Rome. Oh, I, I love that church. It's it's pretty overwhelming when you go in there, and it's particularly because you're, you're looking at the birthplace of this most fanatic and most intellectual of Catholic movements. When you look at the art, you get a sense of how these Jesuit priests were inspired to get on rickety boats to preach to the Indians in the New World. And the Jesu Church is ground zero for the Jesuit movement. In fact, the facade of that church is the same facade you see, I think, in the New World. Yeah, if you think about these famous cathedrals, like the mission churches in California with those kind of sloping shoulders uh, that become very distinct, well, they all came very simply from the facade of the Jesu Church that sits in Rome. Francesca. One thing I want to tell you to just try to make sense of Baroque in general, remember two things, that Baroque is multimedia, that is, it mixes 
painting, sculpture, and architecture to create this global experience of art. And remember that it's also the first mass media in art in the sense that, as Antonia said, and as we discussed, the Renaissance for, was for a small group of intellectuals. Baroque is for everybody. It's the first art, really, that talks to the masses. You could look at the colonnade of Piazza San Pedro reaching out symbolically See, to embrace the masses absolutely. as art now reaches out to both convince you to follow your church without question and warm you up. Yeah, I'd agree that the the art, uh, while we think of Baroque as perhaps being pretty highfalutin, probably at the time it was more similar to like a Steven Spielberg movie. Echo. That is Perfect. big, high special effects that would wow the masses and make a pack a big emotional punch. That's the challenge, to get ourselves in a mindset before our multimedia, intense, special effects age, and realize those were awesome special effects. Yes. Yes, even at the Colosseum. Think of seeing your first tiger at the Colosseum. If you can recreate that capacity for wonder, you have it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been going on a sweep through history and art in Italy. Didn't even get beyond the Baroque movement. I think we're all kind of excited about <laughs> Baroque. It's kind of interesting how that works. And uh, we've been joined by Gene Openshaw and Francesca Caruso. Uh, if you guys could just wrap things up by, by taking me to one special piece of art and give our listeners a little sense of the magic you can get when you appreciate art in its proper context. Gene? Rather than one piece... How about one museum, the Vatican Museum? It would give you the entire sweep of all of what we've been talking about, and that's the way it's designed. You start and you look at these Egyptian statues of animal-headed gods. You walk into the Greek section. You see the statue of Laocoon, who's struggling with snakes, and you get the sense of the Trojan War. You walk into the Roman section, see how the, the Romans took Greek art and wrote it on a large scale. And then finally, you see how all of this gets revived later on by the great artists of the Renaissance, reborn. Raphael painting frescoes on the Pope's wall. And then, of course, the climax, you walk into the Sistine Chapel and see Michelangelo paint really the history of the Christian universe on the ceiling and the altar wall, culminating in the Last Judgment. So one work, I don't know, but one museum, Vatican Museum. Vatican Museum. museum. That's perfect. That's, that's really absolutely true. Now, if I have to choose one work that I would say where you realize that art can be significant, I would choose a super classic. I would choose a Pietà. Because the Pietà Michelangelo's by, by Michelangelo's Pietà, Pietà yeah. in St. Peter's. Pedro. Because there it is something that everybody can connect to. After all, you look at it and the first thing you see is how wonderful his technique is, the, the flowing robe and so on. But then you can add layers of meaning to it that can really be very, very personal. There is uh, this uh, theory that is this interpretation of that Pietà that's, that's rather popular in Italy that we are taught in, in high school that says that you will notice as Mary seems to be larger than Christ and also she seems very young. And this interpretation says that it is because as we see it, we see her having a vision. We see her having a moment of foreshadowing. She is seeing the fact that her son will uh, die when he grows to become an adult to save humanity. And how does she respond? With one hand, she's holding on to him. With the other hand, she's letting him go. Because it is as if what we see is happening on Friday. But Sunday will come. Life will return. Life is never destroyed. Life changes. And I think that for everybody to be able to see that and have that experience, I've seen many people touched by that possibility. And for four centuries, visitors, pilgrims, tourists have stood right there and found that same hope. I, I like to think that. It's a beautiful thought. That's appreciating art. Francesca and Jean, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.